that's amazing. They're just sitting in the palace, you know. Uh, Dost is like just chugging like beer, and he's like, "Oh yeah, it's just it's just like the U.S. Like we've got our <laughs> we've got our tribal chiefs and our clergy in there. There's, hey, you want a drink?" And Josiah's like, "No." I'm just now imagining a picture of like the Supreme Court next to a picture of. Islamic clergy from Afghanistan. It's that meme from The Office. It's like, corporate needs you to find the difference between these two pictures. <laughs> They're the same picture. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. What's good? What's good indeed. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James... Wow, I let James's name is still in the document. This isn't even funny at this point. <laughs> yeah, that joke got old it, a while It dies ago. fast. Okay. So the way this works is that George and I will do our amateur's best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway in our ridiculous clodhopper fashion. So, George, who do we have this week? We have Josiah Harlan. I, have you ever heard of him? I had a pastor named Pastor Harlan once. Harlan? Probably not the Harlan. same one. Definitely not the same guy. <laughs> Pro probably not. Probably yeah, not. I get the sense, like, I, this pastor was so cool. One time, and he was, he was such a, he was such a lad. He, 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 we held church, and we held church, like, from, like, I think it was from like 10 to 11:30. I was really young when he did this, um, but uh, he was—he was—he knew he was going to give a sermon. And at the beginning of the sermon, he started a bread maker in the in the actual area. And his whole thing was about like fasting and the importance of like putting off satisfaction and that sort of thing, and how we can be controlled by like basic shit like smells. And so the whole time, it's approaching lunchtime, and this bread just smells amazing, and it's cooking up front. And at the end of it, he opened it up, and he's like, it's done. And then he closed it, and he said, so all of you have to go to lunch now, and I'm going to take this bread home. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so what... I'm, I'm not exactly tracking. What was the takeaway from this? The takeaway was that your appetites can control you, and they can be the only thing that you'll think about. If I remember right, one of the things he said was, uh, and I was so young, so if I, I probably don't remember, I'm probably making this shit up, but um, it was something this like... This is a uh, podcast, that's what we do. That is what we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I remember going up to him, I was like five, four or five, whatever, after the service, and I went, Pastor Harlan, can, can I have some of that bread? And he was like, no, kid, sorry, it's for my child. <laughs> So, okay. yeah, so now that we're done talking about hilarious uh, Baptist preachers, shall we head down to the history lab? I, I think we should. I think we should, so we can hear about hilarious Quakers. Okay. Off we go. One man, one country. One 1970s actor's tenuous claim to an Afghan princedom. And a world of adventure, 
Josiah Harlan, the Quaker who changed the world. Turns out raising barns can sometimes get you into some weird shit, and this quakey lad is no exception. Join us as we explore the life of Josiah Harlan and his misadventures in the magical Disney world known as Afghanistan. So, George, tell me, if you had to deliver, say you had a secret document on your person and your only hope of surviving being kidnapped by Hillary Clinton was going to was to be to deliver that document to Alex Jones himself what document would be important enough for you to deliver to Alex Jones Harambe's birth certificate there we go that's what I was waiting for oh shit okay so oh you got to ask the question back though buddy i know you're new but yeah, at least I know what your fucking name is, Aaron. <laughs> That's true. So tell me, Aaron, what document would you hide from Hillary Clinton? Uh, I think probably the script for this episode. <laughs> or That's we fair. Don't, this, but we don't have one. That's the we unofficially we officially do not have a script. Um, on we talk. That's about why that. it's so easy to hide. It doesn't exist. Exactly. You can't find what doesn't exist, right? <laughs> Uh, well, okay. as, a pro- as a professional academic, I think I have to say no, or else many of us would be out of jobs. That's true. <laughs> uh, okay, computer, please bring up Josiah Harlan. So, George, what was Josiah Harlan best known for? Well, I would have to say that he's best known for not being known well enough, because this man is absolutely crazy and no one's heard of him. What he could be known for, however, is being, maybe, the inspiration for Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, Fantastic film adaption. Okay, so I just found out that this was a movie that was worth watching the other day. Um, But, uh, please continue. (laughs) We'll watch it, because it's literally one of the best films ever made. Um, I'm pretty sure I watched it at least three times a week from about age eight to about um, now. What? Well, you know, that's not uh, that's not unheard of with you. You have watched John Wick over a thousand times. That's true. That's true. Going for that record. Mm-hmm. So if outside of that, he could also be best known for being the first American in Afghanistan. Wow. Though that might not necessarily be something you'd want to be known for. But I don't know. Maybe they secretly had WMDs or something. Only he knew about it. I don't know. I'm just asking questions, man. Look, we had to get Bin Laden, okay? We had to get Bin Laden. He was so bad. Uh, Okay, so uh, all those jokes aside, what did this man, Josiah Harlan, look like? So he was tall. Um, It's not clear exactly how tall, but definitely over six foot. Not, Not freakish, but... But a pretty tall boy, um, very broad shoulders, but a bushy brown beard sort of tapering down at the end, and a coarse traveling cloak wrapped over an elegant but austere robe. Whoa. Wild, but a sort of trimmed hair with that sort of old-timey half-assed part in the middle <laughs> they were into. Um, and he had very deep-set dark eyes under a furrowed brow with a, with a big-ass forehead, and he's sort of staring out at the horizon with the gleam of the pride of conquest in his eyes. And overall, he's got that sort of dark, contemptuously scornful look, which really only centuries of weird Anglo-Protestantism can produce. (laughs) No, that's true. Look, real quick, I'm going to Google a photo because I just want to see this guy. I spelled it Josiah Halran. 
<laughs> that sounds like it would be like some congressman from Oklahoma. Whoa, shit, this guy looks like a... He looks like a... Kind of like Moses. <laughs> yeah, he's got... You, you see what I mean about the uh, the contemptuously scornful look? Oh yeah, he's got it. He's, he's really got it. <laughs> Alright, so shall we, uh, shall we move into his early life? Absolutely, we should. Hell yeah. So he is uh, he's born on June 12th, 1799, back in the good old days when Reagan was president, in <laughs> Chester County, which is over in eastern Pennsylvania. Confusingly, not where the city of Chester is located. The city of Chester is in the next county over from Chester County. What? But Chester <laughs> sucks, so we're glad it's not in Chester County. Um <laughs> His parents are named Joshua, Josh, and Sarah Harlan. He is the ninth of ten children. Big family. Uh, they're Quakers, so they're weird. Um, okay. <laughs> they've got sort of a very austere, commerce-minded family. They're all the family all works in uh, brokering merchant goods. Um, so they presumably have a lot of lot to do with ships coming in and out of Philadelphia. Um, they have a very very strict discipline, very pious Quaker family. Um, many of the sons followed uh, followed mom and or not mom followed dad into the family business of being merchants and brokers. Um, there were seven sons, three daughters, by the way. Uh, his older brother. Richard is uh, the only other member of the family to have a Wikipedia page. Um, that's what he's well known for. Wow. Uh, he was a famous doctor and also a scientist because back in ye olden days, you kind of got to be everything. So he was notable as a biologist, a, zo- a zoologist, a herpetologist, a paleontologist, and a physicist. Like, he did everything. It was just like ye olden times when if you were like learned, you were expected to just be learned about pretty much everything. He also had the largest collection of human skulls in America. Uh, <laughs> why? <laughs> because he was into biology and paleontology and all that shit. He was uh, I mean, really into... Yeah, he was, he was interested in everything. That really wasn't so that's that his, weird of a thing back then, to have a bunch of skulls, huh? No, I don't think so. I mean, heck, if you look at a lot of, like old paintings it seems like lots and lots of like the uh, early saints and stuff anytime they were sitting down chilling at their desk writing an epistle they always had some like skulls sitting around for for ambiance <laughs> i mean classic right <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm sitting at my desk right here with a skull like i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> well i mean i've got a skull but it's in my head i i mean that wasn't that funny okay Keep going. <laughs> so, um, Josiah is the ninth out of uh, ninth out of ten. So he's got eight older siblings, and you know how that always goes. Um, he loves reading. He spends most of his time just alone reading. Uh, by the time he's a teenager, he could read Latin and Greek, and also was fluent in French. So he's he's bright, bright kid, bright kid. Gotta love that classical education, though. Absolutely. It's almost like knowing other languages is like a door into other worlds or something. I mean, I, I don't know this. This might break my rigid um, parochialism. I don't know if we can do this. (laughs) So he was also a little bit of a weirdo, though. Um, He read scientific and medical textbooks for fun, and I don't know who does that. That's weird. I didn't even read the scientific textbooks assigned for the classes I took, much less for fun. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
His favorite subject is botany, uh, probably influenced by his older brother, since his older brother was very into uh, into nature. Um, but his favorite humane subject was ancient Greek and Roman history, mm. especially Alexander the Great. He loved Alexander the Great. It was his favorite character in ancient history, and that'll be uh, that'll be pretty important later on as the story, as we will see. Oh, oh, oh no, <laughs> Afghanistan better watch out. <laughs> So you can already see he's, he's kind of a weird kid. Um, he's also one of those kids, and we all know this type, who gets along really well with adults. We've all been there. We've seen those. Adults all think he's very intelligent. Um, he also comes across as very ambitious, but a little bit arrogant and impulsive. And as somebody who probably... Okay, maybe not intelligent, but I definitely come off as ambitious, arrogant, and impulsive. I can sympathize with that. I mean, I have watched you slam a shot of whiskey before we go and get pizza. I mean, we, we were saving that for later, and you just pour it. Oh, okay. Bam. Shot gone. <laughs> so I get it? Ah, uh, second grade, man. <laughs> Oh, man. So when uh, when young Josiah is 13, his mother dies. Um, and the Quakers were not always, but usually kind of socially progressive. And she had a pretty significant monetary estate herself that was her property, not her husband's property. And she left a pretty large amount of money to her three daughters, $2,000 each, which that's about $40,000 a pop today. Wow. Look up inflation, kids. Um, <laughs> but she didn't leave anything to her sons, so take that, patriarchy. Um, the, the boys patriarchy were... within her own family are the children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the boys have a little bit more pressure there since they've got nothing. The daughters all now have, you know, a pretty, pretty substantial fallback, um, whereas the boys are not going to be given anything. Right. So... Um, They've got to, uh, you know, they've got to start making that, making that bread. Yeah. Um, ah, that was good. You foreshadowed that by talking about the bread maker. I did. Have you ever heard of a pastor who makes bread? I don't know. <laughs> There's a, so a pastor I know, he follows this Instagram page that's just about, uh, like, megachurch pastor's shoes. And these people just, like, take pictures of the megachurch pastors and then find the brand. And they're, like, wearing $40,000 shoes. <laughs> preaching. It's great. Why does this not surprise me in the slightest? Okay, so, boys, no money. Uh, so they're under a lot of pressure to, you know, figure their shit out on their own. So some of them go into commercial business like their dad and become merchants and brokers and other boring stuff like that. But Richard, the guy who was, um, you know, a scientist about everything and was very influential on, on little Josiah, uh, he goes to work as a doctor for the East India Company in, drumroll please, India. Oh, 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 I see what you did there. <laughs> that, that, was, that was clever, the way I foreshadowed where it was going to be yeah, with the name of the company. So much foreshadowing going on here, we might as well be writing for fucking Hollywood, man. <laughs> We're in the wrong line of work. It's going to be subversive in a minute here, don't oh worry. Oh my god. <laughs> so after a couple years of doing his doctoring in India, he comes back and, uh, you know, obviously he's got tons of stories because... You know, when you live in the early 1800s in Pennsylvania, like, you don't really see the world a lot. Mm. Um, really, no one does, including people from Maryland, too. They just, they don't see the world. Right. So, he's got all these stories about India, which are just fantastic to his younger siblings, including Josiah. Um, they just soaking up these stories of the strange lands of the far-off east. And so, Josiah is getting, getting into his, you know, his teens here, getting towards the late teens. Uh, he doesn't want to be a lame and boring merchant. 
Uh, so Richard and Josh, the dad, decide to uh, help set him up on a different path. Josh gets him involved into Freemasons, uh, which <laughs> oh, God. at this point in America and really the whole Anglo world, everybody who's important is involved in the Freemasons. It's if you want to be, succeed in politics, business, or anything in most of the English-speaking world at this point, you're probably a Freemason. It's basically like LinkedIn, but with secrecy and cult rituals. <laughs> so actually exactly like LinkedIn. Hey, you have a story about Freemasons, don't you? Do I? You, you do. Right? Or maybe, maybe it was that other guy, the raptor. Oh. Yeah, so one of my roommates in college... Um, <laughs> broke into a Masonic temple during construction when it was vulnerable and, like, stole these shitty white gloves, um, which may or may not still be in my possession. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know why, but they might still be in my possession, and I never, I don't really know why my roommate broke into a Masonic temple either. Um, but there were, that was the, that was far from the biggest of the unanswered questions with that relationship. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, where was I? Oh, yeah, LinkedIn, exactly. Um, yeah, don't forget you endorse the other... Anyway. Uh, so Richard, his, the scientist bro, mm -hmm. gets him a job on a merchant ship going to the Far East, India and China. It's a long-ass trip there, and then there's, like, stuff they've got to do there, you know, merchanting and whatnot. Right. And then it's a long-ass trip back, so he's going to be gone for over a year. It's, it's a big commitment. Mm. He does this, he loves it, you know, it's successful, he makes money, he's doing well. He's like, wow, this is okay, this is cool, I can do this. So when he gets back, because um, you got a, a while between trips, usually you don't, like, do back-to-back -back like a coked-up trucker going from New York to L.A. <laughs> right. um, so he gets back, and he falls in love with a woman named Elizabeth Swaim. Um, and he goes the whole nine yards. He's writing poetry. Because remember, he's like a smart kid. He reads a lot. So that's the kind of person who do that. He writes poetry. He sends flowers. He does the whole works. It's really romantic. They get very serious, and they eventually get engaged. Aww. And they're going to be married. It's really sweet. That's um, nice. But he's scheduled to leave again by this point, by the time that the romance has blossomed. Mm. And so they decide that it would really, really suck to get married and then him immediately leave for a year. Um, the international mail was pretty slow in 1823, yeah, no so not not great newlywed experience. So they just sort of reaffirm their engagement, and they plan to marry as soon as he gets back. I have something um, I want to say about that. Um, I was reading, and maybe I've talked about this already, but I've been reading about the history of the Telegraph for a part of a job I'm doing, writing test questions. Um, and basically, until the Telegraph system came out, um, the idea of instant communication was kind of scary to people. Um, because, like, you could say anything and it would be instantly on the other side of the country being spread around whether it was true or not. So, I, <laughs> I may have already said this on the podcast, but it just blew my mind. So, the first message ever sent by telegraphy, uh, long distance, was, uh, What hath God wrought? That is strangely apropos mm -hmm. when you look at what most mass communications consist of these days. I'm looking at you, Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> and LinkedIn. Get your stale-ass memes out of my face. <laughs> so anyway, he's off in, in you know back at in back at it again in India, um, and Elizabeth is his fiance. She's back in Pennsylvania, and she's supposed to be planning and preparing for the wedding. So when the job is finished um, and he's back at the port in Calcutta, 
ready to hop on that boat and get back to his one true love in America. Um, so it's been, you know, like almost a year at this point. Uh, since then, he would have several months to sail back. But he gets there to the port, and there's a message waiting for him at the port from Richard, his brother, telling him that not only had Elizabeth not been planning their wedding, but in fact, she had married someone else. Oh my god. So not only had his fiance left him, but she hadn't even told him or arranged for someone to tell him. He had to find out because he gets back to the port and there's a message from his brother who heard that she was married now. Not a great time for Josiah. Come on, Liz. Um, what the hell? What gives? Yeah, seriously. Seriously, that's just, that's cold. Mm. So he says, fuck it. I don't want to go back to America. And he decides to stay in India instead. And that's uh, that's sort of where I cut off his early life. Because um, this is when everything starts to get, like, a little bit crazy. Okay. Don't he doesn't get a lot crazy yet. That comes later. This is just mild crazy. Yeah. You know, so, having a woman lie to you like that, <laughs> that'll send you to a place. That's uh, not... Well, we'll see. We'll see. So... To do a quick recap, he's in his mid-twenties, he's very intelligent and well-read, even though he's pretty much entirely self-taught with many subjects. He's emotionally wrecked by his fiancée's betrayal, because mm. um, not only did she leave him and not tell him, but he finds out from his brother's letter, she started dating the other dude within a few weeks of him leaving and was married within a couple months. What the fuck? Yeah, so... You think you know someone, but anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so he writes a lot of journals and poetry about pain and heartbreak and loneliness and everything, which, I mean, I can't blame him. Like, that is a majorly shitty situation. Mm -hmm. um, so he decides to take his mind off of everything by doing what everyone who ever wanted to take their mind off of anything does, which is what, Aaron? Joining the military. <laughs> Exactly. But this is India in the early 19th century. So the military is the British East India Company's private army, which is kind of the government, but also technically not the government, but mm. actually the government. Uh -huh. um, so where he is attached to an artillery regiment of the company, nice. which is like a libertarian wet dream. Yep. Um, <laughs> As the company is preparing for one of its many wars, this one against the Kingdom of Burma. Well, shit. Okay, here we go. Yeah, real East India hours. Burgaloo. So, despite having <laughs> no formal training or education, um, Harlan declares himself a doctor. Oh, good. <laughs> and is accepted as such after making his, his case before a medical uh, review board. He's relying on medical books he borrowed from his brother and just read in his spare time. He apparently impresses them enough that they're like, sure, you can be a doctor. <laughs> um, and he is appointed as a surgeon and serves in the war for a year as a battlefield surgeon. But he's also really into uh, the war as well and is often sort of goes to serve in the positions of men who've been killed or who died while he was operating on them. He's like, oh, they need somebody helping out over on Cannon 4. I'll just go do that for a while. Um, so he's getting a lot of military experience as well as medical experience, uh, despite, you know, not being a doctor. Right. Um, <laughs> So he's, you know, he's learning a lot, uh, really learning the ins and outs of warfare, combat, sieging, artillery, storming fortresses. He's doing it all. Eventually, he gets injured. Not entirely surprising. Right. Um, but while he's recovering, the war ends, which is really a downer for him because he was he was just getting into it. Um, and with the war over, he gets posted to a place called Karnal, which is pretty far up in uh, the north of India, near the edge of 
where British-controlled India ends. Mm. Um, and he's bored there. He's right. getting tired of the whole military discipline and command uh, because, like, he's never liked it. But as long as there was a war going on, it kind of it was worth it because you could have fun in war. Yeah, kept um, him occupied. And, yeah, but now that he's got nothing to do, he's just trying to figure out what to do with his life, he reads a book with a very, very long 19th century title that we don't even have time to go through because like four sentences long, <laughs> by a wizard named Mount Stuart Elphinstone. What? I have I have just concluded that he's a wizard based on his name. Yeah. Like, you know, the lies on the internet say that he was a say that he was a travel writer, but I'm pretty sure Mount Stuart Elphinstone is a wizard. That's definitely a wizard. <laughs> So, uh, Mr. Elphinstone had visited Afghanistan a few decades before, being the first Westerner ever to visit there in, you know, modern times. Hmm. And he wrote the book about Afghanistan. And young Josiah reads this and thinks it's really cool. Uh, he's really entranced by the idea of this mysterious mountainous land filled with, you know, warring tribes and kings and warlords. It just completely outside of his experience and pretty much unknown to the Western world. He'd always kind of, like, as we talked about, not been that into taking orders and authority and was just not really, not hacking it in peacetime since there was nothing to distract him from the fact that he had to follow orders. Right. At the same time, which is kind of funny, he was absolutely merciless when it came to insubordination towards him. Like, if somebody wasn't acting the way he wanted them to, he would, like, he would fuck you up. But he hated when anyone else told him how to act. Um, right. <laughs> character flaws. He had also really come to hate the East India Company. No you know, shit. The people he worked for. Because <laughs> they wielded all the real power in India, even though they kept, like, local kings and princes around and still technically ruled. All the power was in the hands of the company. And so he's reading about this wild land of mighty kings ruled by strength and violence, and it really just sort of sparked something within him, and it just came to, it took over his mind, and he was just obsessed with the idea of going to this place that is outside of the East India Company's control. So he starts learning the languages that he can in northern India, which are Hindi and Farsi, and pretty soon quits the army. He's like, I'm done. Since he's now a civilian, he had to get permission to stay in India, um, which he did get, but he didn't plan to stay for very long. Writing in his journal about Afghanistan, he reflected that, and this is this is classic Harlan. He always wrote like this. It's ridiculous. Audacious ambition gains by the saber's sweep and soul-propelling spur, a kingdom and a name amongst the crowned sub-deities of this diademed earth. Holy shit! Oh, man. Can you imagine if people tweeted that way? <laughs> <sighs> don't don't even don't tempt me with such a beautiful vision. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, it's he always writes like that. Like literally everything he writes sounds like that. He writes uh, like a king. <laughs> so this is when things start to get even more crazy. Like we we check the crazy at the whole I'm a doctor even though I'm not a doctor thing. That was a little crazy. Things are going to get more crazy. Okay. So he heads up to a city called Ludhiana, which is on the border of British India. And the Punjab, which is an independent empire. Um, and he's trying to enter the service of the Maharaja, that's the emperor, Ranjit Singh, who is the ruler of the Punjab empire. And he's, this is, these are Sikhs. So, you know, in all this, you have Hindus, you have Sikhs, and you have Muslim areas. The Punjab is a Sikh empire, and the Maharaja is its emperor. That's, that's going to be very important, so remember those terms. Gotcha. 
The Maharaja is very strict about letting Westerners into his realm, since he, you know, he's got the East India Company's number, and he knows that they're super, super questionable, and are totally not above sabotage and espionage and whatever they can do to achieve greater power. So he doesn't generally let Westerners in because they might be agents of the company. But sometimes he would hire Westerners if they had special skills he needed and passed whatever was a background check in the 1820s. I'm not really sure what that consists of. Um, mm. But Harlan tries to enter a service, and so he's just hanging out there in Ludiana, waiting for the you know the ATF to process the forms or whatever. <laughs> um, and while he's just hanging out there, um, waiting, he's getting getting pretty uh, impatient. Mm. And at this point, while he's there, a while a East India Company officer who's in this city, because this city is sort of the entrance to the Punjab, so it's still in the East India Company part, but it's at the edge of the Punjab, so this is where you have to enter if you're British. Um, so a company officer who's there describes Harlan as mysterious, well-dressed, and very well-versed in classics and botany, which was strange for a mercenary. Um, he apparently just liked to talk about ancient Greek stuff and flowers. <laughs> um, and he told this guy that he apparently intended to write a book about the plants and flowers of the Punjab once he got in. So it's like, oh, that's... <laughs> Nice, you're going to go be a mercenary so you can write a book this, about flowers. This mysterious mercenary is going to literally write about flowers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. This mysterious mercenary who's a member of a pacifist religion is going to write about flowers. Yeah. <laughs> so while waiting, however, he hears about a very wealthy exiled Afghan king called Shah Shuja Durrani, who lived there in Ludhiana. So he wrote him a letter saying that he wanted to work for him and help him reclaim his kingdom. Uh Afghanistan is still, in fact, uh, very unstable and dangerous, and anyone's grasp on authority is very tenuous. Mm -hmm. Uh, When one defeats one's enemies, you usually then get killed by your friends and family. So there are tons and tons of factions and loyalties at play. So this particular Shah, Shuja, uh, he had helped his brother to depose and then blind their other brother. And then he deposed the brother he helped. And then that brother escaped and came back and deposed him. (laughs) But then, oh, it gets, gets better. Then that brother, um, he had a man from another prominent family, the (laughs) Bazaz, the Bazakzai publicly chopped up. Um, so the 72 sons of that man overthrew that brother and were then busy at this point, overthrowing each other. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, so it's wild. It's wow. wild. Um, the Shah, who's hanging out there, he's intrigued, and he's honestly probably kind of bored, so he invites Harlan over. Um, Harlan gets there and finds that all of Shuja's servants are maimed and mutilated. Everyone's missing ears or noses or tongues or balls or penises, etc. Uh, because apparently the Shah had a policy that any time someone upset him or displeased him in the slightest, he immediately had something cut off them. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, so this is not a, not a not a not a chill dude. He's not a nice no. nice man. <laughs> no, Shuja is not a nice man. Um, so they speak in a mix of Hindi and Farsi, both those languages that Josiah had been busy trying to learn, since Harlan doesn't speak Pashto, which is the native language mm. of Afghanistan. Uh, Shuja invites him to a picnic outside, and then there's a breeze, and the tent blows down, and so he has the slave in charge castrated right there oh, on the spot. Fuck. The tent blows over, and he just yells, "Cut that man's dick off!" <laughs> That's and <awful>. they do. <laughs> yeah, Shuja has no chill. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, not zero out of ten would not seek employment. <laughs> um, 
all his reviews on Glassdoor, like <laughs> wages, you know, in the yellow, um, company environment, somewhere in the red. The review is just like, that man took my dick. <laughs> so Harlan does put in his journal that he found this very disturbing. Oh, no shit. But not disturbing enough to not take the job Shuja offered him. Uh, Shuja hires him for a very vague and undefined task of causing problems in Afghanistan that will be of interest to the exiled king. Mm. Like, you know, prepping things for him to eventually come back into power. Because as I said, power is super tenuous. It's like a revolving door. Mm. So, is a, you know, it's not like, oh, someone else in charge now. It'll be hard to take them out. because. But when you're on your way to depose a king, that king might be deposed and the next one deposed before you get there to depose the one you were going for. Like, <laughs> it's very God. fast. And so it's not unreasonable since this guy made it out that he could come back into power. So he hires Harlan to just go, you know, cause problems or whatever that may be of use to him. So Harlan gathers together about a hundred random mercenaries, um, and he finds a tailor there in Ludiana and has him sew an American flag. Oh my God. And they set out towards Afghanistan. This motley crew of like, He's got Hindus, he's got Muslims, he's got Sikhs, he's got beggars, just like random people he rounded up with this like hand sewed American flag on a stick as they march away. <laughs> That's insane. And then, and then they pick up a couple British deserters on the way because deserting from the military, you know, had a sentence of death. And so if you were deserted from the British East India Company, which is the military, um, you you kind of had to flee towards the edges of civilization so you wouldn't get caught. So as they're like leaving civilization, they're like picking up some deserters who now are joining their little group. Oh, my God. That's um, so Harley weird. doesn't really seem to have had a plan. They're just kind of wandering around the mountains trying to figure out what to do. And eventually one of those British deserters, now this part is shocking, deserts. And <laughs> and other people follow him. And you know, this really pisses Harlan off. And he realizes that he has to buckle down and like actually do something concrete before everybody leaves. So he pretends to be a dervish, which is a sort of mystic in Islam, from Mecca. And since Arabic isn't well known in this region like most people they know some prayers in arabic but it's not well known the tribal chieftains that he has to get safe passage from to go into their into afghanistan through their land he's able to fool with a few memorized arabic phrases that you know says i'm a mystic i'm coming from mecca etc and since they only know a little bit of arabic they can't tell that he's not an arabic speaker and so it actually works and him and his little little group um get safe passage into afghanistan i guess it pays to know language really well huh also, to be absolutely balls to the wall insane. Yeah. Just... <laughs> pulling it, pulling your hand sewn American flag out, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm legit. Let me through. And they're like, yeah, you look legit. <laughs> the beggars yeah, no, in the background, like stealing <laughs> shit. Yeah, no, it's it's not quite clear, but it is suggested in some of the sources that he had while he was recruiting his uh, you know quote unquote army he had like his flag up and was kind of like implying that he was an official agent of the US government oh my God. which is hilarious when you think that like oh yeah this like ragtag group of random people I've picked up marching <laughs> under this hand sewn flag on a stick yeah we're official representatives of the American government I mean these <laughs> days <laughs> well yeah these days that's true <laughs> ugh so he's gotten into Afghanistan um, and they're kind of wandering around again, not really knowing what to do. Uh, but soon good old Shuja begins the real invasion and he seizes Peshawar, one of the main cities. But 
as we've established, he's a dick, and he immediately begins offending tribal chieftains, the very people whose support he needs to stay in power, and they pretty much start deserting him and going back to their, in very heavy quotation marks, loyalty to the Bazakzai brothers, the 72 <laughs> brothers who are all jockeying for power in Afghanistan. The reviews on LinkedIn for the Bazakzai brothers, they don't <laughs> cut your dick off. <laughs> that, I mean, that is a convincing argument to me. <laughs> So Harlan has his little army, and he's intending to use it to take out Dost Muhammad Khan, who is the most important of the 72 um, <laughs> Bazakzai brothers. Uh, he's the smartest. He's really the only one who has, like, long-term long -term thinking and has sort of kept any semblance of, like, authority and order. And Harlan figures if they take him out, everything's going to fall apart, and the brothers are all going to fight each other, and Shuja can just sort of sweep in and cut everybody's dick off. Right. <laughs> Um, but Harlan is far less sneaky than he thought he was, and he is immediately noticed, tried to bring his little army into the capital city of Kabul, um, and Dost Muhammad Khan just decides to receive him as a guest. Um, is like, you know what? I don't know what the hell you think you were going to do, but, you know, come, come visit my house, be my guest. Um, and as a guest, um... He could not be killed according to very strictly held Shosa rules, the, the Pashtun Wali, it's the tribal code. Um, killing a guest would, pretty much you would never be able to be an authority figure again. Mm. Someone else would murder you if you broke it and killed a guest. It's like, there are no rules except for very few rules that are like vigorously held mm. um, in this part of the world. So they end up speaking a lot in Farsi. Um, since Doss doesn't speak English and Harlan doesn't speak Pashto. And Harlan actually finds he really likes the guy that he came to kill. Uh, kind of likes him more than Shuja, hmm. uh, the dick cutter who he's working for. <laughs> and despite being a Muslim, Dost is also really into drinking and whoring. And there's always lots of booze and hookers in the palace, which Harlan is not a huge fan of. Being a Quaker, um, he records... <laughs> Yeah, he records that he's not, not you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit uncalled for, but that Dost seems like a good guy nonetheless. Um, it's paraphrased. Yeah. So they end up, like, having a lot of conversations um, because, you know, Dost doesn't necessarily get to talk to, you know, random dudes from Pennsylvania a lot, and who doesn't want to talk to random dudes from Pennsylvania? I mean, I can't <laughs> think of anybody. <laughs> so they talk a lot about, like, politics and history and stuff, and Harlan explains the separation of powers in the U.S. Constitution to Dost, because Dost wants to know how the U.S. government works, and Dost says that it's pretty much the same thing in Afghanistan, um, with the emir, the tribal chiefs, and the Islamic clergy kind of mirroring the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court. Huh. So make of that what you will, but it's like they have like some real, real like serious comparative discussions about Afghan and U.S. politics in the 1820s. That's amazing. They're just sitting in the palace, you know, uh, Dost is like just chugging like beer <laughs> And he's like, "Oh yeah, it's just it's just like the U.S. Like we've got our <laughs> we've got our tribal chiefs and our clergy in there. There's, hey, you want a drink?" And just I was like, "No." I'm just now imagining a picture of like the Supreme Court next to a picture of Islamic clergy from Afghanistan. It's that meme from The Office. It's like corporate needs you to find the difference between these two pictures. <laughs> They're the same picture. <laughs> We didn't make that meme. <laughs> <laughs> we should make that meme and put it on the Twitter. Oh, man. Um, yes, I said the Twitter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they're getting along really well. And Dost gives uh, gives Harlan the freedom to wander around the city 
um, and kind of just do his own thing. Harlan's having a great time. He's looking at plants, like he's looking at all the plants. Um, and his his journal's great. Um, he talks about like how it's confusing to him how all the women on the street are either completely covered or are literally prostitutes and are almost naked. There's literally no middle ground. Huh. And he just thinks he just finds that weird um, that like at the same time you have this like rigorously enforced modesty. But you also have like open prostitution. He just he found it really weird. Um, that which, sounds like a, a class division of some kind. Am I wrong about that? I don't think so because even you know poor women are also very you know they're very uh, you know modestly dressed as well as you know well-to-do women who go out. It's kind of prostitutes are kind of I think a sep- uh, It's kind of their own class. Mm, that's yeah. like it's, not, it's they're not necessarily poor or rich. They could be either. I don't really know. I'm just spitballing from familiarity with other Near Eastern culture. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so he just finds it weird. He has a lot of like observations, uh, most of them about plants, but some about that, that <laughs> stuff. Um, as he's on one of these flower expeditions, he gets approached by a man who says that he's an assassin working for Shuja, and he's there to take out Dost, and he needs Harlan's help to do it. Uh-oh. And Harlan is pretty worried about this, because he thinks if he says yes, it's going to turn out that it was actually a trap by Dost to test him, and that he'll be killed. But he's also afraid that if he says no, the assassin will have been legit and will kill him to keep him quiet so he doesn't inform. So he comes up with the idea that he, he will have recourse to the Pashtun Wali, that social code. Mm. And he says that, you know, yeah, obviously, um, he's my host. He welcomed me, so I can't violate the Pashtun Wali to kill him. Um, you know, so he really, he really sidesteps. Like, he doesn't want to say... Yeah, I'm working for Shuja because it might be a guy who works for Doss, but he also doesn't want to say, oh, I would never kill Doss because he's afraid the guy might actually work for Shuja. Right. So he's trying to avoid saying which side he's on, so he just has recourse to the Pashtun Wally, and the dude pretty much just says, you passed, Doss says hi. Whoa. Um, yeah, yeah, the guy, the guy was actually a trap set by Doss to test him. Wow. I guess you got to keep your... I guess you got to keep your guys in check. Especially in Afghanistan, as we've talked about. It's... It's wild out well, there. Well, they don't trust people carrying American flags, so I get it. <laughs> <laughs> True. So while he's there in the city, there's this massive cholera outbreak. It kills tons and tons of people. Um, and like there, he Carlin puts these things in his journal. Like he's wandering around the city, and he like goes, it stops into a mosque to look inside, and like the entire congregation is literally all inside, dead from cholera. Oh god! Um, like it just it's killing people at such a rapid rate they can't haul away the bodies fast enough. Whoa. Um, but he is told that the only way to survive if you get infected is to go on an absolutely massive bender. <laughs> And he gets infected, and he starts to feel the symptoms. So he finally breaks his uh, Quaker conditioning and gets absolutely smashed. Wow. And when he comes out of the bender several days later, recovered, um, according to his journal, he said that was the last time that he was afraid of death. Whoa. Once he'd come through that experience Oof. of drinking yourself into oblivion to save your life from cholera. <laughs> um, when people ask me why I drink, I say <laughs> <Yeah>. cholera. <laughs> It's the cholera man. So he's just still there. Eventually the cholera epidemic is over, and he's just still there dicking around in Kabul and uh, looking at plants and visiting people. And at one point, this is great, he has this like public dispute with an alchemist who claims to be able to turn fish into silver. What the hell? <laughs> Which is like the greatest ability I can think of. But yeah, Harlan's there like with his 
chemistry knowledge and his <laughs> physics knowledge and was like trying to give like these scientific reasons that it's impossible to turn fish into silver. Um, and eventually the, the kind of breaks up and the alchemist just disappears because he's tired of arguing with this dude <laughs> with his his learning. His, um, his science. Who needs yeah, it? Exactly. That's funny. Um, eventually he decides that Dost Muhammad is really unlikely to be overthrown by a jerk-off like Shuja, mm. and that he doesn't really want to help overthrow him, and so he goes back to India, which is much easier to get into the Punjab from this Afghan side than it is from the British side, mm. so he's able to just go right into the Punjab, which is where he was originally trying to get into when this whole Afghan thing came up. Wow. Um, yeah. And so in the Punjab, he meets a French general named Jean-Francois Allard, who had been one of Napoleon's generals and had gotten France's highest military awards, but then just decided to move to the Punjab and sort of become a court sycophant to the Maharaja, the emperor, and write poetry about how great the Maharaja is. And the Maharaja really, really liked this. He liked having people write poetry about how cool he was. Oh, shit. <laughs> and he let him he let him stick around. Um, he was also, like, kind of vindictive. Like, uh, Jean-Francois wanted to go back to France for a visit. And, like, the Maharaja made him, like, write all these, like, obsequious poems about how he's just a poor worm begging for this favor from the great emperor. Oh, and, my God. And the Frenchman does. Okay. <laughs> and then goes, goes, goes to France, visits, <laughs> and then comes back and just keeps writing poetry. Um, so, yeah, Ranjit Singh really likes this. He's he's cool with having sycophantic Frenchmen. He's not as cool with English because possible associations with the company, as we talked about. Uh, but he does hire a lot of French, Germans, and Italians to be officers in his army. And although he's constantly like verbally denigrating Europeans and talking about how horrible they are, he pays really, really well. So like Allard, the poem writing guy, literally lives in a palace modeled after Versailles. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, like these guys are making absolute bank. Wow. Um, <laughs> in exchange for putting up with an you know the Maharaja just talking shit to them all the time and like not letting them visit without writing poems. I mean, all you gotta do is just say, "Yeah, man, you're right. Baguettes really suck. You're right. <laughs> I'm gonna go home to literally Versailles." <laughs> yeah. yeah, poor me. I'm gonna go home and cry myself to sleep. <laughs> so this guy, Allard, um, he brings Harlan to Ranjit Singh to see if they can work out a deal for Harlan to work for him. Harlan describes him in his memoirs as an incredibly short man with one eye, scars all over his face, wearing all white with a massive diamond set in a white turban. Whoa. Incidentally, that massive diamond he took from Shuja in an earlier war, and that diamond is actually now part of the British Crown Jewels. No, sh really? Yeah, That's... I can't remember what they what they call it. It's one of those named diamonds, oh, um, and yeah, it's it's really famous. But he took it from Shuja, who you know we we know all about Dick Cutter, um, right? Ranji was also fucking insane. He okay. was addicted to alcohol. He was addicted to alcohol, painkillers, and orgies. That's my espresso uh, machine turning off. Okay, I was <laughs> like, what the hell is that? Yeah, no, espresso away. I mean. So this guy's, this ruler is addicted to alcohol, painkillers, orgies, shitting on Europe, and paying people, Europeans, really high wages to talk about how awful they are. Yes. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. No, Ran Ranjit Singh is absolutely off the chain. Um, 
He also made his own moonshine wine out of ground-up gemstones and orange seeds. Uh, Of course, because that's just what you do. Like you do. Um, He also liked to make dancing girls get drunk and have, like, Super Smash Brothers brawls in front of him while he got drunk on his ground-up gemstone liquor and watched (laughs) them and laughed. That's like... That's like the mo- the modern day equivalent of that would be like a hipster uh, watching two squirrels fight over a nut while drinking Jamba Juice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild times in his palace, always. Wow. But at the same time, he was also obsessive about his health, and he literally kept dozens of doctors on staff and was seen by them multiple times a day. He insisted on having medical appointments. Whoa. This, however, worked out really well for Harlan because he's a doctor, right? after all. <laughs> yeah. And so he gets hired as one of the doctors and told Ranji whatever he wanted to hear, like the rest of the doctors did. Um, a few of them had tried to get him to stop drinking ground-up gems, but he always refused. Gotta have um, that Jamba ju- that Jemba juice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was actually pretty good. Unbelievable, this guy. It's what time is it? It's nine thirty at night. He's making coffee. <laughs> Maybe I'll just leave this in. This is like a nice break. In the midst of all this insanity. <coughs> Pardon me. Just a nice little break. You guys remember when the History Channel went crazy about the Gospel of Judas? That was weird. Bitchin', I forgot I had a peach cobbler in my kitchen. <laughs> peach cobbler and coffee at 9.30, 9.40 at night. That's how I roll, man. How late do you stay up? Oh, you know, um, four or five. Really? Not infrequently. Not every night, but... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a night person. No, I'm not. <laughs> person okay, of the so, night. <laughs> where, where were we, we? We were talking about the guy drinking ground-up gemstones. Oh, yes, the Jemba Juice. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, let me just let's see. Make sure yeah, I'm sitting in the same place. Okay, microphone's still good. Cool. All right. Okay, so soon um, Ranjit got bored of Harlan as a doctor because he wasn't doing anything, like, outrageously fun. Um, and so he offers him a military post or a political appointment. Um, Take Harlan pick. decided he wanted a political appointment since it would make more money. Right. Of so, course. in yeah, still that way actually. In 1829, <coughs> uh, he was made uh, the governor of Nurpur, which Ranjit had conquered the previous decade in a war, and he did this for a couple years. Um, after he proved himself to be competent, he was given the more important governorship of the coastal city of Gujarat. With a very large salary. Woohoo. Um, oh, yeah. And Ranjit tells, tells him, if you behave well, I will increase your salary. If not, I will cut off your nose. Well, that's that's pretty good, pretty hard deal, but <laughs> hey, you know, you've only got one and, nose to lose, and once they cut it off, they can't <laughs> cut it off again. Exactly. Like, I'm just imagining a noseless man standing there, like, what are you going to do? Cut my nose off? <laughs> 
so, you know, with this, this bargain, um, Harlan takes it. It turns out, though, that nose-cutting is actually one of Ranjit's favorite pastimes and that there were a large number of noseless ex-governors wandering around. Oh, dear um, God. It's great. One contemporary traveler who passed through uh, the province while Harlan was governor actually wrote a little note in his memoir about how the fact that his nose... Or, sorry, let me read it. I'm going to read it directly. The fact of his nose being entire proved that he has done well. <laughs> so does he cut it off in pieces? Like one minor fuck up, he was like, ah, you lose a nostril. <laughs> I don't know. I probably should have looked more into the nose cutting. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll research that for you next You look time. more into the dick cutting. The side <laughs> of the uh, I mean, it's like a train wreck. You can't look mm-hmm. away. So, for Harlan, this is great. He's basically the dictator, because he's the military authority and the civil authority. As long as Ranji gets his taxes and there's no rebellion or anything, Harlan pretty much gets to do whatever he wants. He's having a great time, living the dream. Nice. Um, India, at this point, it's just absolutely wild, like this part of the, the 19th century. It attracts weird types from all around the world just kind of end up there because it's sort of a place you go if you just want to do something new and different and leave things behind. Mm. So you just end up with all sorts of weird people. Um, at least two other provinces in this the Punjab Sikh Empire were governed by Italian and French soldiers who showed up there like Harlan did. There's a dude named Joseph Wolfe who was a German Jew who became a Catholic then became a Lutheran, and then became an Anglican priest, and was wandering around. <laughs> he just fired him off like a machine gun. Oh my god. Yeah. So and at this point, he is wandering around India looking for the lost tribes of Israel so that he could convert all of Asia to the Church of England. <laughs> That's so random. Why? Oh, my God. I I don't have answers for you. Oh, um, man. So, yeah, there, as I said, there are, some, there are some what you would euphemistically call characters yeah. <laughs> around at this time. There are some real characters. <laughs> um, so um, this guy, uh, Joseph Wolf, when he shows up in Gujarat, um, he tries to get an audience with the governor of the province, presumably to ask him if he had seen the Ten Tribes of Israel, or if he wanted to join the Church of England. Right. And he's expect he's expecting, you know, like a Sikh nobleman, since he's, you know, in a province of this Sikh empire. But according to his memoir, um, he's very surprised because a American whistling Yankee Doodle walks up to him and introduces himself as the governor and says, I am a free citizen of the United States from the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. I am the son of a Quaker. My name is Josiah Harlan. Dude, all you need to know right there. <laughs> yeah, like that that guy could give like a seminar about introductions. Mm, yep. I can already see the LinkedIn articles about it. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> Subscribe to my YouTube channel to learn the secrets of introducing yourself. <laughs> of introducing yourself to German Jew turned Catholic turned Lutheran turned Anglican <laughs> priests who may be wandering around your domain looking for the lost tribes of Israel. <laughs> oh, man. That's hilarious. So they get to talking because, you know, there aren't a huge number of Westerners around. So pretty much whenever Westerners run into each other, they talk because it's, some you know, it's sometimes nice to hear from, you know, about things happening in Europe they may have heard about, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. You don't get a lot of 
the contact. So he Wolf actually becomes a little bit of a confidant to Harlan, and Harlan tells him all about his fiance's betrayal and his heartbreak, um, like by like their second conversation. Oh, so it's pr- presumably still kind of on his mind. Yeah. Um, he also, however, tells him that his plan is to become a king in Afghanistan. Well, <laughs> so all I can say to that is get you a man who can do both. Yes, definitely. <laughs> like the sensitive side, but also like the Afghan warlord side. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so there's other rogues congregating around Harlan, including, and this one might be my personal favorite, Alexander Gardner, who is a Scottish-American adventurer and warrior who was trained in combat as a child by Indians on the shores of Lake Superior who had deserted from the Russian army <laughs> a few years earlier. The 19th century was just crazy. I was going to say. <laughs> so unlike Harlan, who at this point still wore mostly Western suits, Gardner had like full Afghan native tribal robes, but made entirely from Scottish plaid tartan, turban and all. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> And he's also covered in scars and wounds, including a gaping hole in his throat, which he had this little, like, tool thing to hold closed so he could drink. Uh, uh, Okay, okay, this is like the proto-cyberpunk world here. Yeah. It's like... He's all... His nickname that he's known as is Gardana Khan, because Gardner um, becomes turned into Gardana, and then of course Khan is like, you know, an honorific title since he's like a war chief. So yeah, Alexander Gardner becomes Gardana Khan in the mountains of Afghanistan. That's amazing. <laughs> and um, when he shows up and meets Harlan, he says that that was the first time that he had heard his actual given name of Alexander Gardner spoken in years, and it took him a while to, like, learn to recognize it as his name, because he'd just been living in the mountains of Afghanistan, like, as a you know, warrior chief for years. Wow, this is a crazy world. <laughs> oh, it gets better. And so guess who else shows up? Oh? The alchemist who Harlan had had that public argument with several years before about the turning fish into silver. Yeah. He just shows up one day um, and asks if he can, like, join the squad. <laughs> this is like a real dream team at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Harlan's like, okay, whatever. And, um... At his request, um, Harlan tries to help him join the Freemasons, who the alchemist was convinced held the secret to alchemy. Um, I'm sure they do. Which is suspicious, (laughs) since he already claimed to be able to turn fish into silver earlier. Secret Freemason. Why does he need the secret? But anyway, so yeah, this alchemist who he argued with like three or four years before shows up one day and is like, hey, can I be your friend? Also, can you help me join the Freemasons? (laughs) And, you know... Our man Harlan's like, the more the bear here. <laughs> Come on in. The water's warm. Man. I like Josiah so, yeah. Harlan so far. He's he's really not pissing me off that much. And his, his like, world-traveling stories are actually mostly hilarious. <laughs> like, yeah, so it, far it we've is... come across, we've come across a guy who cuts off people's dicks as punishment. <laughs> and a, a king who always gets drunk and has prostitutes around who's best friends with a Quaker who can't handle it, who survived a cholera epidemic by going on a massive bender after getting an argument with uh, an alchemist who could turn, who claimed to turn fish to silver, and now he's hanging out with a Scotsman who forgot his real name. <laughs> and has a hole in his throat. Oh, yeah, and of course the, uh, the Anglican... The Anglican, whatever the fuck, who's trying to find the lost track. This is so great. I told, did I not tell you this was going to be wild? You did. <laughs> this is great. 
Yeah, so it's it's crazy times. Wow. We've now reached um, 1834, um, and the Sikh empire of Ranjit Singh, our favorite gemstone alcoholic, <laughs> goes to war against our buddy, Dost Muhammad Khan. Uh-oh. And they take the city of Peshawar, which was the same city that the loser, Shuja, had taken and lost back when our boy Josiah was working for him years before. It's, <laughs> You'll find that like the same people keep reoccurring in different places. It's a tale as old as time. The perpetual revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's what happens. And then Dost, who's Muslim, of course, um, he declares a jihad against the Sikh emperor, you know, Ranjit, and gathers a massive army of tribal warbands who hate the non-Muslim Sikhs. Meanwhile, the sort of westernized Sikh army, because you remember you've got like Germans and Italians and French people trying to like turn it into a western army, Mm -hmm. but that's probably slightly counterbalanced by the fact that the emperor is a literal painkiller addicted crazy man who drinks (laughs) gemstones. Um, But they're kind of westernized. But they're complemented by these radical Sikh fundamentalists called Akalis who fought from horseback with twin sabers and through razor-sharp metal rings. That's so bad. They're like these razor-blade hula hoops that they would (laughs) throw from their horses. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's wild. You can actually... um, I don't know how many of you remember Forged in Fire, the only good reality show ever made, but making one of these... Metal razor rings was one of the challenges in the first season. Okay. I never watched that show, but I might have to watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> um so things things are getting 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 wild here. Um so Ranjit sends Harlan to try to find a way to destabilize Dost's uh Baraksai um regime and end the war without a massive slaughter. Does this sound familiar? Someone sending Harlan to go try to destabilize Dost's regime? Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen because Harlan and Dost are kind of like bros at this point, right? A little bit, yeah. Like, they got along well. Harlan liked him. So, but Ranjit sends him. So Harlan had heard that Dost's brother, also called Muhammad, because remember, it's Muhammad Dost, um, and this is another brother who's Muhammad something else, okay. uh, was angry that Dost had used his trap card as Amir to take a dancing girl that the other Muhammad was planning on taking into his harem. Okay. Um, so he did the old, uh, I'm the Amir, I get to put her in my harem trick. Um, mm-hmm. So Harlan offers a large bribe, and the brother is... He, he, he signals that he's open to it. He's open to switching sides, but he's not quite ready to commit. So there's this whole runaround between Harlan and Dost Muhammad and other Muhammad, and there's lots of lying and showboating and projecting authority, because remember that authority is really tenuous for Afghan leaders. And so, like, there's all these, like, there's this whole weird runaround of, like, who's going to drink this bowl of fermented milk first? <laughs> it's kind of like that scene in The Princess Bride, honestly, about the poison. Oh, yeah. It's literally like that. It's it just it's wild. It goes on for, like, several days, and Harlan is just perpetually having to ride back and forth between the two brothers and his actual boss, Ranjit. Um, and while he's doing this, things are getting more and more uh, violent because they haven't like had a full-scale battle yet. But you remember, you've got all these like Afghan tribesmen who've just come because they want to kill Sikhs, and you've got the crazy razor blade throwing dudes on the horses who just want to kill Muslims. And so there's a lot of skirmishing going on in the area between the two main armies. And so he's got to ride through this like bunch of times while doing this whole diplomatic runaround. And I could just imagine he's probably getting really tired. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. I, there's a note here that you 
in the not script that you, you sort of left out, <laughs> he's riding between these places, possibly on an elephant, which makes it way oh, funnier. I, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's because at one point, because nothing actual that I found says how he just says he rode. And then there's one place where at one point during the runaround, other Muhammad is lying to Dost Muhammad and claiming that he killed Harlan and took his elephant. <laughs> And like that's and there's nothing else about the elephant anywhere, so I'm not sure, but I just put that in there because at least so the I don't know if the I don't know if the elephant was a lie too, because obviously the fact that he killed him was a lie. Um, yeah. And like it's it's all like I don't even understand what anyone was doing really, because like literally the message that says I killed him and took his elephant is delivered like five minutes before other Muhammad and Harlan both go to talk to Dost Muhammad. So I don't even know why he sent a message saying he killed him and took his elephant since they were literally like on their way there to talk to him. What? Uh, so he would obviously see it was a lie. As I said, I tried to like understand and I just failed to figure out what. And so we're just going to leave it at there was a lot of diplomatic back and forth and eventually other Muhammad agrees to but switch sides. You've just got this, this Quaker riding between two <laughs> warlords on an elephant probably drinking Jemba juice. Just like... <laughs> How do I keep all these people happy? <laughs> yeah. And so finally, other Muhammad agrees to switch sides. And so Dost Muhammad was forced to cancel his invasion and withdraw since he just lost a, you know, a big chunk of his army. Right. And remember, this is his brother. Um, but remember, there are 72 of them. Right. <laughs> so, and they're probably all named Muhammad. I haven't confirmed oh that. My God. <laughs> all the ones who, put it this way. All the ones whose names I read at any point during this research were named Muhammad. Okay. So I'm going to extrapolate from that that they're all named Muhammad. That would be so confusing. <laughs> so the invasion is canceled, um, and the Afghan army goes back up into the mountains. And then Ranjit, I don't know if he's, like, mad because he hasn't been able to get enough Jemba juice in the field. He starts bitching about how they should have just had a battle uh, since they would have won anyway. You know, why would we do all this whole diplomacy thing? We should have just fought it out. Um, and Harlan's, like, not not happy about that since he's, like, been riding around on this elephant and, like, doing all this. And it's not even appreciated. But, you know, he Ranjit's not necessarily a guy you want to talk back to. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Right. Nose, nose cutting and all. So he just bides his time. Not too long after this, Ranjit has a stroke. Um, which I don't know how, since he's the world's healthiest man who's seen by like two dozen doctors four times a day. Probably an alchemist in there too. Mm -hmm. But he has a stroke and he demands that his favorite doctor, Josiah Harlan, mm -hmm. cure the slurred speech that he was left with after the stroke. Um, and Harlan actually did research and he found, figured out what was currently being used um, to deal with that kind of thing. And they have an electric generator which produces shocks brought in from British India because at that time in Europe, um, that was actually like a medical practice. They used this shock thing to try to like press the reset button after somebody's had a stroke and is like stuck somewhere. Oh like, God. you know, they can't move something. They just like try to reset them by zapping them. Um, so this like Harlan didn't make this up. This is actually like contemporary medical practice, which is kind of impressive, really, that he actually went and like figured out what was actually being done instead of making something up. <laughs> I It just makes me think like. You know, we look back at this and you're like, wow, people were so stupid. They thought that delivering electrical shocks would actually work. And I'm like wondering what medical practice we have today that like in a hundred years we'll look, people will look back and be like, wow, they like blasted themselves with radiation to save themselves from cancer. That's so stupid. 
Well, I mean, just think, it's not that long ago that you had, uh, the lobotomy craze when it's like, hmm, my child's crying a lot, I better cut their brain yeah. off. Ugh. Like, have you ever read how they do that? Like, going through the eye socket oh, yeah. with, like, the little, the little scoopy thing? The ice thing? pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we can laugh at the, the zap machine, but, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it doesn't work. Um, Ranjit still got the slurred speech, but he has a great time because he's super tolerant with pain, maybe because he's addicted to painkillers. Right. And so he didn't really mind being electrocuted. So he would play these various games where servants would be tricked or forced to touch him while he was being electrified, thus being shocked themselves. And they had much less pain tolerance than him. So he would like have all these games where servants had to like all hold hands. And then the one on the end had to touch him. And it was like, whoever let go of somebody's hand first, like lost. It was and probably I don't know, probably got shocked again for losing but like he had all these games that involved electrocuting his servants while he was also electrocuted this dude is so fucked up (laughs) yeah it's (laughs) wow it's kind of unreal honestly like that this is actually history yeah (laughs) but then disaster strikes Ranjit finds out about the alchemist living with Harlan and is enraged that Harlan hadn't shared the great wealth generated by turning fish into silver. Um, There are also rumors that were spread by some of Harlan's political rivals that he was counterfeiting currency, but I don't know. That doesn't seem that likely to me since, as we've seen, like... There's a lot of money floating around if you're a European governor of one of these provinces. Like, why would Harlan take the effort to, like make the whole currency counterfeiting operation, which takes a lot of planning and stuff when there's money being thrown around like that. Mm, Yeah. Well, why would you counterfeit when you could turn fish into silver? (laughs) (laughs) Also true. A a pretty reasonable argument there. So anyway, Ranjit is really pissed that not only has he not shared the wealth of the fish turned into silver, but he might be counterfeiting. So, facing possible execution, Harlan books it out of the Empire and right to his old frenemy, Dost Muhammad, who he has now worked for both of the invasions against him. Uh-oh. He worked for Shuja when he invaded Muhammad, and he's worked for Ranji when he invaded Muhammad. But, um, Dost, as we've established, is reasonably chill, um, and lets Harlan stick around in Kabul. Um, And, you know, look at flowers and stuff like he was doing before. (laughs) And while he's doing this, he meets one of those British deserters who had deserted his little, like, ragtag army with the American flag on the stick way back in the day. And so what does he do? He writes a letter to the East India Company denouncing the dude and revealing his real identity and the false name he was using. So they can catch him. Um, As he said... Harlan didn't like following orders, but he really hated whenever anyone was insubordinate to him. Wow. Wow. And the East India Company eventually did catch the guy, and they gave him a choice between being executed or becoming a spy for the East India Company. And so the guy becomes a spy for the East India Company, but obviously hates them because he's literally being threatened with death if he doesn't become a spy for them. Oh my god, that sucks. Yeah. Eventually, Dost takes Harlan once again into his inner circle and actually sort of does his English language diplomacy through him and lets him write letters in English, you know, as under Dost's name as official royal letters. And so uh, Harlan writes all these letters allegedly from Dost, who speaks no English, 
uh, to British officials, written in that same very, very purple style that Harlan has, trying to get them to help him against Ranjit Singh, his old boss, and he in condemning the reckless and misguided acts of Ranjit, despite the fact that he, Josiah Harlan, writing those letters, literally was in charge of some of those acts. Yeah, and he was also on the payroll. Uh, yeah. Like in multiple... He was literally a governor of the empire that did this invasion, and now he's writing the letters to the British, like, shit-talking the empire he was working. It's... Yeah. The number of schemes this guy is running. <laughs> it really is remarkable. Don't know how I pulled it off. Um, My God. So the British get these and just kind of ignore it. They're like, okay, <laughs> whatever. And literally just ignore it and do nothing. Um, so Harlan ends up in the military side of things and he trains the tribal recruits of Dost's Afghan army into a better fighting force and teaches them the best tactics to counter the technological superiority of the Western-style Sikh army. Like, uh, you know, just basically tactics to avoid, to minimize casualties from artillery and stuff, right. like, and trying to make people not panic. Mm. Um, when, the, when Ranjit's Sikh army was mostly back further south for a royal wedding, Harlan and one of Dost's sons lead an attack and actually defeat a Sikh force and kill Ranjit's favorite general. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Yeah. So Harlan is very proud of himself, and he considers this revenge upon Ranjit for, uh, you know, the whole counterfeit silverfish incident. Mm -hmm. um, and he writes, The proud king of Lahore, that's the capital of Ranjit's empire, the proud king of Lahore quailed upon his threatened throne as he exclaimed with terror and approaching despair, Harlan has avenged himself. This is all his work. Man, you know, I know Harlan's writing about himself and like, he's bi <laughs> yeah. big on he's big on exaggeration. Um, but I'm kind of wondering if... Ra I'm sure Ranjit was, like, super pissed off with him at this point. Oh, I, I'm sure he was. Um, <laughs> Ranjit, as we've established, not necessarily an even-keeled individual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ranjit then sends our favorite Frenchman, Allard, his, you know, nice little pet poet, to retake the area and forces the Afghans to withdraw back into the mountains because he sends sort of the full army back with, uh, with Jean-Francois. Mm. Which is, as I said, the same people keep showing up. So this had been the guy who introduced Harlan to Ranjit is now leading Ranjit's army to make Harlan withdraw back into the mountains. Um, he then also appoints an Italian mercenary general as the governor of this region to protect it from Harlan. Okay. <laughs> Why? It's crazy. <laughs> this is so um, crazy. <laughs> it really is. Like, being a European in Afghanistan in the 1830s just wild times yeah. um so but the next year uh dos decides to let the east india company send an agent to represent their interest at his court um you know he's he he's hoping to be able to get more information than he gives like to kind of know what they're up to if they have a representative at his court um and so they send a scot named burns at this point there are three westerners in kabul harlan burns and that army deserter that Harlan had denounced to the company, who's now an East India Company spy. So literally three Westerners in Kabul, and all three of them hate each other. This, uh, I, I don't. This is like this is like red yarn on the on the bulletin board kind of shit right here. It's like who's connected to who? This is like the precursor to the CIA. This is <laughs> oh, it gets listen, it gets oh, better. God. And so later that year, a Polish-Lithuanian nobleman named 
Um, Witkovics, which I'm probably mispronouncing, and I apologize to our Polish-Lithuanian listeners, um, who was the Tsar's commercial representative, he shows up at Dost's court to uh, be the Russian representative there. Because remember, once you're in sort of the Central Asia Near East, you're getting towards that, like, area where the Russians have interests, because, you know, they control, you know, everything up north in the frozen area that's no- straight north of all this. Right. So you're getting into the Russian zone of, of interest. Um, you know, hence the fact the Russians had their Afghan war back in the, uh, what was that, the 80s or the 90s? I have no idea. I think it was the 80s. Um, but yeah, so you're getting into the Russian zone of interest. So he sends this nobleman, Witkovics, to represent his interests, the Tsar does. And the, as since he was a Russian agent, he's obviously kind of distrusted by all three of the Anglos in the city. Right. The Scott Burns, who represents the company, the spy, who's being blackmailed to be a spy for the East India Company, and Harlan, who very much dislikes the East India Company, hence why he left their military. So there are now four Westerners, none of them like each other. Um, that Christmas, Mohammed Das decides to have a Christmas dinner for the Westerners who matter. Um, obviously, the spy doesn't get invited because he's not important. Right. But Dost has Burns, Harlan, and Witkovics over for Christmas dinner, which may be the most awkward Christmas <laughs> dinner in world history. A Christmas? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> this Muslim Afghan warlord has an American, a Scotsman, and a Russian who all hate each other over for Christmas dinner. <laughs> I don't know if I can top that. I mean, it, I, I bet Dost was just trolling them. <laughs> it's just like probably that, that. That sounds like something Dost would do. That little y'all rascal. gonna fuck around with my nation, my my <laughs> kingdom. Uh, you can all have Christmas dinner at my house, and I'm just gonna sit here and sip my whiskey <laughs> and watch you all fume at each other. <laughs> yeah, no. Like next time somebody asks me about one of those, like if you could have dinner with you know, whatever people historically. I think I might just describe this actual historical dinner that happened and say that's the one I want to be at. <laughs> yeah, so it's wild. Um, so Harlan is just there working for Dost for a while, training the army. We're now up to 1838. Uh, Dost gives Harlan an army of about 4,000 uh, with some infantry, cavalry, artillery, and war elephants Classic. to attack a is Uzbek slave trader warlord named, you're not going to believe this, Muhammad. Um, <laughs> this one's Muhammad Murag Beg. Hmm. And the thing is, he's on the other side of the Hindu Kush mountain range, you know, one of these massive, terrifying mountain ranges. Um, Harlan's idol, Alexander the Great, had led an army over the Hindu Kush literally thousands of years before. And this gets Harlan thinking... Um, because we've already established, you know, he's really into Alexander, and he started to think, ooh, now I'm going to lead an army over the Hindu Kush. And then Das just makes all of this worse, or better, because he gives him a gold medallion of the goddess Athena from ancient Greece, which had been found in the remains of one of the cities Alexander founded on his campaign. Whoa. And it had ended up in Dost's treasury, and so he gives it to Harlan, and that just seals the deal. Harlan is like full-on, I'm the new Alexander the Manifest Great. Manifest destiny um, right there. And as they're going up the mountains, uh, they find it's too difficult to bring the war elephants over, and they have to be sent back. Ugh. But that's also exactly what happened to Alexander the Great's army. Oh, oh, right, that's right. Yeah, once they get to the top of the mountains, Harlan 
has his homemade American flag raised on a peak, and they do a 26-gun salute. <laughs> no worry about avalanches. On the, on the top of the Hindu Kush with his <laughs> Afghan army. And an American flag. That's so stupid. <laughs> yeah, no, like, I obviously there's no no pictures of it, but I really... I hope just for my own entertainment's sake that the tailor in like where like was it yeah in Ludiana who made the American flag I hope it was really shitty like I hope it was lopsided like you know completely unsymmetrical like comical looking like that would make it so much better if it's just like this like cartoonish looking American flag you know I'm just gonna see I'm just gonna see if they have it preserved somewhere Oh. Nothing. Not really. Okay, sorry, carry on. Yeah. So, he's got his army. He's going over. They raise old glory on the Hindu Kush. And uh, as soon as they get on the other side, Harlan starts getting all these volunteer troops from the um, Hazaras who were Shiite Muslims and were the most frequent target of the slave raids by the Uzbeks who were Sunni Muslims. And the Hazaras are actually, they are ethnically very distinct from there. They are much more uh, East Asian. They're believed to be the descendants of Mongols, I think, who settled there during the conquests of the Great Khan. Um, and so they're ethnically different and religiously different. So they don't get along well with the Uzbeks, and the Uzbeks are always enslaving them. And the Uzbeks are not really nice. Um, Harlan writes about how shocking it was to find that the Uzbeks literally sewed a loop of horsehair under the collarbone of the slaves into a loop so they could attach a rope to it for leading. So they literally had like this big curved needle that they would loop under your collarbone and pull and oh. pull a rope through. Oh no. Yeah. So Har Yikes. Harlan this is the like the one part of Quakerism that Harlan was actually serious about Harlan really didn't like slavery. And so this just horrified right. him um, to no end. And as you can imagine, the Hazaras were pretty, pretty willing to volunteer for his army since he was there to fight the Uzbeks. Um, their first engagement was the siege of a fortress held by a different slave Lord. Do you want to guess his name? Okay. Uh, Muhammad yes. something. Um, okay. So Harlan's semi-westernized army, and more importantly, the artillery he brought, meant that the battle was very short and very decisive. They just demolished this fort. And after well, when you have massive guns, <laughs> you can just blow everything up. Yeah. <laughs> and so after they have such a quick and easy victory, um, you know, everybody takes notice. So Harlan is soon getting approached by like all the local tribal leaders who are desiring to, you know getting his good graces it's like damn this guy just came over the mountain and is fucking shit up with cannons um <laughs> the most powerful hazara prince in the region whose name was muhammad refi um welcomes harlan's army into his domain and calls a 10-day feast to celebrate the arrival of these people who are there to fuck up uzbeks um well i guess that's one way to show show your uh these warriors that you don't want to fuck around with them yeah and so they have this and you know they spend 10 days feasting and drinking and everything and muhammad refi is just so impressed by harlan's little army and how they can march and do formations and stuff and of course the artillery 
that Refi offers his crown as the Prince of Gore to Harlan and his heirs forever if he keeps him, Muhammad, on as his vizier and uses his army to make the land of Gore into a mighty and independent kingdom. Hell yeah. So Harlan accepts, and he soon wages a campaign with his army and all these Hazaras he's recruited, going fortress to fortress of all the Uzbek slaver warlords and smashing them with artillery and Western infantry tactics and just liberating hundreds and hundreds of Hazara slaves, which then, of course, increased the size of his army as, as he's liberating more people, more people are joining. And eventually he reaches the fortress of Muhammad Muradbeg, the original target, and it's like... It's pathetic now. Like, they have one cannon from the 1600s that the Persians left there literal centuries before. Like, and he's got, like, this massive army with artillery, and it's just not going to happen. And Harlan notes in his journal that the Uzbeks were shamefully neglectful of horticulture, and that their flowers were rare, and that the ones they had really sucked, and that they should have spent more time (laughs) cultivating flowers and less time taking slaves. All right, it's official. I, I kind of like Harlan now. <laughs> <laughs> and so Murad Beg, uh, knowing that he is absolutely fucked, um, surrenders and agrees to cease slave raiding and recognizes the authority of Dost Muhammad as the king if he could keep his fortress. And he was allowed to do that. He got to keep his little fortress. And Josiah Harlan, Prince of Gore, triumphant after all these battles, returns to K- Kabul to inform Dost of the victory. But when he got there, he found that those fucks, the British East India Company, had invaded and deposed oh. Das Muhammad and reinstated the already deposed jerk-off Shuja. What? Yeah, after all that, he gets back and it's all gone. Because of those fucks, the British. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah, so he's just like doesn't know what to do so he takes a walk around the city and he hears an announcement being proclaimed you know by royal messengers everyone is commanded not to ascend the heights of the vicinity of the royal harem under the pain of being disemboweled alive may the king Shuja live forever and so Harlan sees that Shuja is still an irredeemable dick and he's also not on great terms with the British after everything and so he departs from Afghanistan the land of his dreams And as he's leaving India on a ship, uh, he writes this in his journal. I'm just going to read this whole paragraph here. Kabul, the city of a thousand gardens, in those days was a paradise. I have seen this country, sacred to the harmony of hallowed solitude, desecrated by the rude intrusion of senseless stranger boots, violent habits, infamous and vulgar tastes, callous leaders in the sanguinary march of heedless conquests, who crushed the feeble heart and hushed the merry voice of mirth, hilarity, and joy— To subdue and crush the masses of a nation by military force is to attempt the imprisonment of a whole people. All such projects must be temporary and transient and terminate in catastrophe. That's heavy. Yeah, so he's not not happy with how this has all turned out, and he leaves Afghanistan, leaves India. He first goes to Russia for some reason, and he tries to get a contract with the Russian government as an administrator to, like, help improve the material conditions of the peasants, like, by more effectively organizing them. But it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, He makes some friends, but doesn't actually get anything done. And so he returns to America. Um, There's tons of press when he gets back. And, because by the time he gets back, it's right around the time there was a big military disaster 
in Afghanistan with a, a British army that got like lost um, and massacred. Mm. And so Af- Afghanistan is all in the news right now. And so he tries to cash in on this by really quickly publishing a book taken of sort of cobbled together from his memoirs um, about his travels. Even though he wants to write a much more like polished, in-depth work about the whole region, he tries to sort of ride this wave of interest in Afghanistan by publishing this first. But mm-hmm. he's obviously kind of anti-British at this point, and so these anti-British sentiments led there to be a lot of efforts to discredit him by British agents, and he was prevented from ever publishing that longer work because um, basically they put a lot of pressure on publishers to not not touch it. Wow. That's so he never shitty. got to publish the longer work. Um, eventually he runs out of all that money he makes uh, from the book. And starts looking for other jobs. So he starts this lobbying firm to try to convince the U.S. government to import camels to use instead of horses in the military in the western part of the country. Well, that's that makes sense. His plan is that they would do this and they would hire him as their buying agent to go to Afghanistan to buy camels, which would give him a, re- a way to go back to Afghanistan. Um, but instead they order camels from Africa because they're mm. cheap and it's cheaper. Um, But the government soon realizes that the camels do not get along with any of the other animals the military use, like the horses hate the camels, um, you know, like the oxes, the pull carts, nothing gets along with the camels. And so they round up all the camels and set them loose in Arizona. (laughs) What? (laughs) Are there like native Arizona camels today? I don't know. Oh my God, that would be amazing. I know there was a time in Australian history where they... Uh, something happened where these rabbits were released. Oh yeah, out there. yeah, I've heard of this. Yeah, and they, they the population got so big it was like it was always open season at a certain point on these rabbits. There's also, of course, there's Pablo yeah. Escobar's hippos. What Pablo Escobar had hippos smuggled into Colombia. Uh, to live in this pond on one of his estates, and then once his drug empire, you know, fell apart and he was in jail and dead and whatever it all just sort of went wild and so there's still this small wild population of hippos living on the remains of one of his grand estates in colombia that is so weird (laughs) yeah so yeah so i don't know what happened to the camels that is a good question but anyway it doesn't go as he plans um so, in 1848, he marries a Quaker woman named Elizabeth Baker. Same name as the previous fiancé, but hopefully this time works better, and it seems that it does. <laughs> She's from Chester County, PA, like he is, and they have a daughter, and by all accounts, he was a good husband and father. Um, however, he always carried in his pocket a poem that he'd written to Elizabeth 1.0, um, when they got engaged, he carried this in his pocket until he died. So he never really got over that whole, wow. like, you know, having his fiance marry someone else right after he leaves thing. Oh my God. That's so sad. Yeah, it really is. So he carries that poem with him his whole life. Um, when the civil war starts in 1861, he actually writes a letter to the government and asks to be allowed to form a military unit and lead it into battle, just like he did in Afghanistan. And despite the fact that he had no military rank, no service in the American army, and he was getting old, he's 62 at this point, the government said sure, and they let him form a Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiment. Unfortunately, it all kind of fell apart really quickly, since he was used to commanding and enforcing discipline like an Afghan prince, and was pretty soon under court-martial for his methods of leadership and punishment. Um, Because if you try to, like, you know, command a U.S. military unit like a 
tribal war band in the mountains of Afghanistan, you're going to have some pushback. Um, you can't really cut off people's noses. So he's under court-martial. Um, but he gets really sick because uh, he's getting old and, you know, this military stuff is hard. And he ends up collapsing from dehydration and fever, at which point they just decide they're just going to force him out of the military for medical reasons instead of continuing with the court-martial. So they just kick him out and that's it. They don't proceed. After that, um, he moves to San Francisco where he starts practicing medicine, you know, since he's a quote-unquote doctor, and dies in complete obscurity from tuberculosis in 1871. Holy shit. Yeah, like, this guy was literally a prince of this province in Afghanistan and a warlord and everything, and then comes back, becomes a, like, mediocre Civil War commander, and then dies in obscurity in San Francisco. That's, I don't even know what to make of that. Because that's not even like a story that... It doesn't end well. It doesn't end well, but there were so many good moments where I was sort of like, yeah, this is this is going to be something. And then it just, everything got pulled out from under him. So fuck the East India Company. That's yeah, that, I, I agree. Um, yeah, it really is crazy how it's just there is no like satisfying ending. Um, hmm. So a couple like interesting points by way of epilogue. Um, so Scott... Reinger, who starred in um, The Dawn of the Dead in 1978, found out in 2004 that he is the great-great-great-grandson of Harlan and technically is his legal heir, which thus makes him the Prince of Gore in Afghanistan because it was granted to Harlan and his heirs forever. So the star of The Dawn of the Dead, yeah, technically the Prince of Gore. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh... Yep, and um, like what I mentioned in the beginning about the man who would be king probably being based on that, uh, There's here's a fun fact that Kipling, who was a Freemason, he claimed that the ideas that gave him sort of the impetus for the man who would be king came from stories that he heard from a fellow Freemason when he was working as a reporter in India in the 1880s, which suggests that Harlan's, you know, wild adventures are still being retold in Masonic lodges in India 50 years later in the 1880s. Because, like, there are a lot of things in The Man Who Would Be King that match up really well. Like, he pretends to be a mystic to sneak into Afghanistan, for one. Like, there are all these sort of things that are very close to it. And so the fact that he claims that he got this from a story he heard from a fellow mason in the 1880s in india makes it pretty likely that those are sort of like recycled and like literally mythologized stories about josiah harlan that are still circulating in the masonic lodges wow i mean i don't know how a story like that dies i mean clearly we didn't know or i didn't know anything about this but yeah i guess when you're a part of a group when you're a mason if you have members that are outstanding or whatever or have weird stories those stories would survive within lodges and things like that that makes sense fascinating stuff yes that's that is josiah harlan it's a it's pretty crazy dude i'm so glad you took the time to to research all of that because that was a that was an absolutely gripping story no i um, no trust me it was the same for me researching it i'd just like be like what the hell is going on <laughs> it's like I, it's like i'm just pictured myself there like i'm just sort of standing looking at like looking at all, everything i'm reading about spread out before me it's like what is even happening there's a dude drinking gemstones there are drunk dancing girls fighting that guy doesn't have a dick like it's just <laughs> i'm just imagining just seeing everything i've just read about it's just like what is this like a hieronymus bosch painting <laughs> And there's a Quaker who became a king, or a prince, whatever. 
That's amazing. Um, wow. So, on that note, I think it's probably time to head to the surface. Yeah, no, I, th- I think so. I need to, like, emotionally recover from that letdown at the end. I know. I see, it's... Oh, it gets me, man. Like, yeah. all that, and just to get back to Kabul, and it's like, we're in charge here now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah fuck the, those people. Yeah, British Empire, notorious supervillains of the past. <laughs> true, true. Oh, George, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Well, Aaron, I think I'll probably make some more espresso and then go yell at college students outside. That sounds great. I'm probably going to go to bed because it's almost 1030 and it's way past my bedtime. Lame. I know. I have, I have, I, I, I could feel myself fading about three quarters of the way through that and I'm trying to hold it together. So let me just close out the show so I can go to bed. Okay, are there any announcements or anything you needed to add in there? Are we oh, good to go? Yeah, I think uh, I think I think we're good to go. We're going to be back next week with uh, another crazy story, guaranteed. Um, I know you guys are going to like it, but uh, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, a lot of people have been dropping us tips and Venmo. You can send your shekels to at WTADP, and we, everything is appreciated. All goes directly to the show. Um, our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the man who would be king play you out. <laughs>